As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. I expected to find people, you know, standing over open pots, you know, of noxious chemicals, stirring them with sticks. That's not what I found at all. I mean, we're talking about sophisticated industrial machinery and everything is run like an industrial laboratory. 
churning out, you know, key, tens, hundreds of kilos of, of meth every week, every month. I just spoke to a lady for an upcoming episode of Australian True Crime who told me that her clothing once tested positive for methamphetamine when she was screened in the visitor's area of an Australian prison. She protested, saying she'd never even seen meth, and the guard asked her if she'd stopped anywhere on the long drive, like a service station, for example. Because if she had, she'd probably just picked it up on her jumper or something. He advised her to always wash her clothes and her hair the night before a visit and never stop anywhere between her home and the prison to avoid picking up traces of meth. And it's not just lying around our servos. There's a fair bit of it in our sewer system as well. A body called the Sewage Core Group Europe regularly tests the drug content of the wastewater of 26 countries, including Australia, to determine where the highest consumption of various drugs is concentrated per capita. As of February 2023, we Australians were the third highest consumers of meth on the list. For comparison, we were the sixth highest consumers of cannabis. Irish journalist Connor Woodman is best known as the host of a documentary series called Scam City, in which he investigated the criminal underbelly behind some of the world's most glamorous destinations. Lately, though, he's become a bit fixated on our meth habit, and he's written a book about it called Meth Road. It's a pretty startling account of where Australia's ice comes from. And if you thought it still came from Sudafed-stocked, bikey-run bush labs, like I did, then you're in for a wild ride. We begin this conversation with Connor explaining why meth isn't cooked locally anymore. I think there was a lot of methamphetamine being cooked in Australia, which you know made it easier for the distribution gangs who are mainly bikey gangs, to control the supply and then control the distribution and keep all the money themselves. But I think as the Australian government started to come down on the importation of the chemicals you need to make methamphetamine, the precursors, it became a risky business when you need 10 kilograms of precursor to make one kilogram of meth. You just think about where the risks are in getting caught on the importation, it's a lot easier to import one kilogram than 10 kilograms. So I think the bikey gangs came to the conclusion of, well, it's going to be easier just to import the, the meth rather than import all the precursors. Yeah, to try and knock over all the chemist shops and get the Sudafed. And it got to that ridiculous point like 10, 15 years ago already where it was became really hard to find the ingredients yeah. to make it. Unless you go, unless you get prescriptions, which, you know, they're still doing. And look, that still exists. There's a chapter in the book. I, I, I met a an interesting chap up in Queensland who was cooking meth in his kitchen with a Coke bottle and some camping fuel and some... Uh, still? Yeah, still. Yeah, because, you know, at, at his level where, you know, at least 50% of what he's cooking, he's taking himself. Right. Uh, the other half is probably paying his rent. You know, he's small time and the state police love to talk about how many busts, how many how many labs they've taken apart. And so guys like him will come up as a lab bust in exactly the same way as, you know, a huge industrial complex out in the bush would come up as a lab bust. And so the figures are kind of milked a little bit and you think, oh, the, the Australian police have taken apart a thousand labs this year, but even a thousand of the this guy adds up to, you know, next to nothing because all he's, he's only knocking out. 10 grams maybe at a time. But it does still go on. It is still possible. Like you say, it's harder to get the Sudafed now. You need you need to get it on prescription. But 
you know, they can still do it. He was actually paying if you brought him I think if you brought him a box of Sudafed, if you got a prescription and brought him a box of the good stuff, you know, he'd give you a point of meth. You know, so he was paying off his Sudafed suppliers with with the meth that he was cooking. So he, he had a nice little enterprise going, but you know, it didn't add up to much. As you say, it's changed. When I first conceived of the book, I thought, because I'm quite gonzo in the way that I write, so I put myself in the story. You know, I'm there, I'm telling you the story as I see it, you know, boots on the ground. So I wondered when I conceived of the book, whether there'd be a chapter where I'd be, I don't know, I'd be I'd be in Brisbane, down in the, the valley, you know, taking meth with some meth heads and write, you just go full gonzo and write about it from the inside. Yeah, when I got there and saw the vibe, I was... Nah, not for me. It's just you know, I hold my hand up and say, you know, I've experimented with with most things over the years, but when I saw the effect, the instant effect that meth had on people, it just didn't seem like a good, fun recreational activity to me. So, so no, I'd never done it before, and I still haven't done it now. But I felt a draw to it because immediately I could see a story where you've got young men and women dying on one side of the world where this stuff's getting produced. And then you've got, you know, once I started to get into where the meth was going, and it's not just Australia. Australia is definitely one of the key markets, but so is Japan, so is South Korea, so is the Philippines, so is New Zealand. These are the places where it's going, and you've got young men and women dying in all of those places. And not that everyone who's using meth is dying. There are people who can use meth recreationally, but a lot of people, it becomes problematic and hospitalization, death, mental illness, you know, all, all these things are resulting. So it just seemed like a very tragic sort of tale. And I just couldn't quite work out how, how did that all fit together? You know, how did that come about? How did it work? How did it operate and why? This is what I love about true crime is digging out the context and yeah, and how things fit together. This is why I enjoy the medium. We are used to telling stories about families being devastated by meth and I think about people we've met on this show who've, you know, lost their kids, lost everything to meth. It's become really popular in the suburbs in Australia. So many people we've spoken to have said they they really developed a habit to help them keep up with things. That's been a really big thing. Spoken to young parents who've said, you know what, I actually started using it a lot to just keep up with life, keep up with work, the kids and all that kind of stuff. And that's how they've ended up losing work in the kids. Yeah, I interviewed one of the guys who appears in the book was a quite high-flying captain of industry and you know, running a multi-million dollar corporation. He was running a big IT review for the company, which involved bringing in contractors and they were working really late through the night and the whole thing was on a deadline. And then one night when he was up working with them, he noticed that they were doing something. He was like, what's that? And they said, oh, it's a bit of meth. You know, It helps us kind of stay up late and work through the night. Why don't you give it a go? And he's like, oh, I've never done drugs before. You know, cut to six months later, he's, you know, driving around in a psychosis with a gun in his car trying to, you know, buy a load of meth because he's a businessman. He liked to get a good deal. He didn't like to get ripped off. So he brought a gun with him, you know, and you're like, whoa, how did you go from that to that in a very short space of time? Stories like that don't really happen, I don't think, with other drugs. The bikey gangs, the distributors, the dealers in Australia are, are no longer sourcing most of their meth from stuff that's cooked in country. It's being brought in from outside of the country. For a long time, that was China, but the Chinese 
cleaned up their act kind of 2014 2015 2016 they just took apart all of the meth labs in southern china that were that were flooding the region bad for business bad for china's reputation you know once china decides it doesn't want something anymore it's very effective at stamping it out but there were very few arrests made what happened instead was that most of the the meth cooks and the producing gangs in china were just encouraged to go elsewhere go somewhere where it's not going to impact on china's reputation Hence, the border region along the western border of China and the eastern border of Myanmar, or what we used to call Burma, just became an option for those guys. And then when you look at the political situation within Burma or Myanmar, so Myanmar is, is split up into kind of ethnic sort of tribal groups, of which there are many, and each one controls its own little patch of land. And they've never really gelled. So you've got a country that got really messed up could, would you believe it by British colonialism? Well, this is it. I had to go and research because you introduced me to the Wa region when I was researching you. And I found out that, well, it says, I don't know if this is true, that this region is experiencing the longest running civil unrest on the planet at the moment. Yeah, it's the war that no one talks about. You know, we're all talking about Gaza and we're all talking about Ukraine, but this has been going on for more than 50 years. The Brits went in. Myanmar was very attractive to them because you could grow rice there and you had great timber there and all kinds of things that they could exploit. And then, you know, when the Second World War happened, the Brits just came out, the Japanese went in, then the Japanese came out. Then the Americans, of course, the CIA liked to get involved and stick their stick in the pot and stir it around. So the CIA saw Myanmar as a great buffer between them and... And the communists. The Reds. <laughs> yeah. So the CIA got in and actually... It was this, the CIA got very involved in kind of promoting the drug trade because by empowering these drug barons who had beef with the Chinese, they kind of slowed down the expansion of communism to the West. So, you know, at one point during the Vietnam War, the Americans were helping these drug lords, these Burmese drug lords, to export heroin from the region to the United States. It, it mirrors the Afghan experience so closely, doesn't it? Absolutely. And you can't you can't really understand the meth scene without first understanding the heroin scene because one just replaced the other. And it's and Afghanistan is, is a very good comparison because the same thing is now happening in Afghanistan. And similarly, the American the CIA promoted the growth of heroin poppies in Afghanistan, which has, you know, been a big part of the upheaval that's been ongoing there. Yeah. But the Afghans, a bit like the Burmese, I think, have worked out that, you know, growing poppy, you need a field field is very visible from the air. It's very easy to destroy. If a bunch of soldiers turn up with sticks or Agent Orange or whatever kind of modern chemical they have, they could completely, you know, wipe you out. And that's that was your one chance to make money this year. Whereas a meth lab, you know, it, it needs what, a hundred square meters? You can put it under a canopy, put the canopy under a tree. You can protect yourself. You put it underground, you can put it anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. So it just became, I think, a more a, a safer and more lucrative option for people that were in in that market. Anyway, I'm assuming you weren't born uh, obsessed with the meth trade, and certainly not with its impact on Australia. <laughs> <laughs> we should go back to how a nice fellow like you, Connor, found yourself in a an ugly story like this. <laughs> Okay, well, I mean, I've got form. I've been doing stuff about criminals and crime for a long time. I used to do a TV series called Scam City. I used to go, like, I'd go to a different city every week and I'd 
kind of find the underworld, if you like, the gangs that were operating. And it would, it would start quite tourist focused, you know, people being pickpocketed or people being scammed by taxis or whatever it was. Um, but very quickly, you kind of go pull on the, on the thread and you find that it's all organized crime groups that are running all of these things. So, so yeah, for a long time, I, I would just hang out with hardened criminals on a weekly basis. And I, you know, formed quite a, quite a good contact black book, if you like, around the world for having done that. And one of the people that I used to work with who became a friend was doing a new TV show for one of the, one of the big streamers. They wanted to do a film about meth labs in Myanmar. And so they'd sent her off to research really just to do the ground research before the crew went in to do any filming. And in the process of researching that, the guy that she was working with, one of the informants that was, that was getting the access was killed. He was shot while she was in there. So she called me one morning while I was making my breakfast in an absolute panic as she was driving at 100 miles an hour through the jungle trying to get back to the Thai border. And she was panicking. She was going to get killed. She didn't. She got out. She got out. She got back to Thailand. But the production team were like, nah, we're out. That's way too dangerous. There's no way we're sending, you know, a film crew and a expensive presenter in to do that story anymore. We'll do something else. Thanks very much. But me being me, I think felt like it was a really good story. I didn't know much about. I felt like it wasn't being talked about very much. Where was Wa? Where was Chan State? Who were these people that are cooking meth in the jungle and who's buying that meth? These are the questions that started going on in my head. And now that I know you can get in, albeit a bit dangerous, but that's never put me off before, if I can get in and find out more about that story and no one else is doing it, then let's go. So I packed my bags, booked a flight and flew over and got myself over the border into Shan State and start, started asking some questions. So walking over the border with the tourists, which is what I did, walked over into Myanmar across the bridge and then started asking questions and found, you know, it's not hard to find someone who wants to sell you some drugs anywhere, you know, London, Melbourne, Sydney, you know, Myanmar, it's the same. So once you find a guy who wants to sell you some drugs, well, he buys the drugs from someone else and he buys the drugs from someone else. So, you know, you can get into these networks and meet these people. And also what guys like you do, and I've seen guys like you do it from a small distance, is it is always, it just takes that combination of guts and confidence and just putting yourself out there and asking the questions. And it is always dicey and it is always, you don't know if it's going to pay off. You don't know if it's going to work. You don't know if this guy's going to take you 50 bucks and never come back or if he's going to take you 50 bucks and take you to somebody else, hoping there's another 50 in it for him. Like I've been with journos who've helped me get to places where they've just like, they're just fixing it right there on the ground and they're just getting you one step at a time. So when people on TV make it look like, oh, they're just magicians and they just make it happen and, you know, they're not kind of sharing with you how. I always think that's a kind of really egotistical thing. I like it when people go, well, I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I just tried this, I tried that, it worked. And it takes time, you know, I think you just said then, it's time. You have to, you know, I was, first time I went over to me, I was there for two months, two and a half months of just working, just working those connections making new connections, working it, working it, working it. And some days nothing happened. You know, some days, you know, hurry up and wait 
and then wait and wait and wait, nothing happens. And then some days a guy comes at three in the morning and says, get your backpack, we're on. Yeah, exactly. And the longer you stick around, the more people trust you. You know, you just become part of the furniture. The big lab that I ended up seeing, well, I wasn't allowed to actually go in, but I could, the guy, my translator was allowed to go in with his phone and film it and come out and show it to me. And I, was, I can ask questions that way. But um, I expected to find people, you know, standing over open pots, you know, of noxious chemicals, stirring them with sticks. That was not, that's not what I found at all. I mean, it, we're talking about in sophisticated industrial machinery because you're right next to China where all this stuff's getting, of getting course. made. Of course. It yeah. was, you know, it was like a NASA lab in a jungle. It's like, you know, brand new sort of stainless steel chrome machinery with pipes and all runoff generators. And it's kind of outdoors. So it's under a canopy in the jungle. So there's no noxious, noxious fumes because you're kind of outside. Um, it stinks. Like the, you can smell, even from a distance where I was, you can smell the, the chemicals around. And people, when they sign up to go and work there, you're kind of on a 12-month contract and you can't leave. That's how they guarantee secrecy. But people were quite highly trained. This is what you do. This is your job. You're going to put these things in here. And everything is run like an industrial laboratory, churning out you know, key, tens, hundreds of kilos of, of, of meth every, every week, every month. Because there's a lot of very highly trained scientists in China. And Taiwan. Yeah, of course. So when, when all the labs were down in southern China, you know, Taiwan, which has a brilliant education system, uh, a lot of chemistry graduates in Taiwan. And then there's a link as well between Taiwan and that eastern side of Shan State, because that's where the, the Kuomintang... The, so when the, when the Chinese Reds chased the Kuomintang out of China, some went to Taiwan and the others went to Myanmar. That's when the CIA got involved. They're like, well, these are the guys that are going to overthrow the communists, so we'll, you know, we'll help these guys out. So when you're setting up a new lab, the kind of what, one way that you can do this is, you know, you set up a new lab, you find an ethnic armed group, you go and approach them and you say, right, look, we want to set up a lab here on your land. We'll set up the lab. We'll produce X kilos of meth, you know, every year. And they'll say, okay, well, we'll take 10%, we'll take 15%, we'll say 20%. Once you get the green light and you get your patch of land where you'll be protected by this ethnic armed group, then, you know, you're, you're good to go. And often then a Taiwanese cook comes over. You know, he's the he's the Walter White. He's the guy with the with the knowledge. The equipment gets brought in. You set up this state of the art meth lab, and then you bring in fifty locals out of the jungle. Sign them up to a twelve month contract. Tell them they're not going to go home. They're not going to be yeah see or talk to anyone during that time. And then you've got your workforce. And then off you go. The chemicals start coming in from China on the back of lorries, and the ethnic armed group help you to take the finished meth as far as the Thai border or the or the Lao border, where you then you know engage with the local smuggling groups. What a blowout. I'm I'm using old drug terminology now, but what a blowout to see. I can't even imagine seeing this huge industrial meth lab out there in the jungle and realising, understanding, okay, this isn't guys in thongs stirring pots with sticks. This is a proper factory with proper equipment and this is as industrial as it gets. And these are these are all the way along the southern Thai border and wow. all the way up the Chinese border. We're, we're talking about like hundreds of labs. And so, you know, some of them are producing, so, you know, that in, in Southeast Asia, they consume meth in a, ta- in a pill form. No, I did not know that. Yeah. So it's called Yaba, which translates to crazy horse. I think it's crazy horse. Yeah. So they'll, they'll buy these tiny little pills, which will sell for 
I think they're about 25 cents now. They're so cheap. They used to, you know, these things were like $5 a pop. Now they're 25 cents. It's crazy. A lot, a lot of the labs in the South along the Thai border where your bar is really popular in Thailand. So they'll be producing kind of low quality meth, mix it with a bit of caffeine, maybe a bit of speed, maybe, you know, whatever. A lot of the byproducts from the big ice labs will feed these smaller labs and they'll just, they'll, churn out millions and millions and millions of these pills and then once they hit the streets people you you can eat them and chew them up your your teeth will fall out quite quickly so a lot a lot of people will then grind it up into a powder and smoke it and it's very popular with taxi drivers construction workers you know people have to do long shifts which in asia you know really long shifts the ice labs you'll either either be alongside them or they'll be their own independent operations but again along that kind of southeast corner of Myanmar all the way up along the the Chinese border as well and we were talking a lot a lot of labs because you know I think it was 50 billion dollars was the estimate that the the United Nations the UNODC put on Myanmar's meth output in 2022 which 50 billion from you know that's that's kind of bigger than the country's GDP that's extraordinary and how much of it kicks back to the government is hard to know. Yeah, there's definitely. I mean, it's it's almost impossible to believe that the that the army themselves are not, if not directly involved in in labs, they're certainly involved in taxing labs and helping distribution. In, in case any of our listeners don't know, the the army is the government in Myanmar. Yeah, so you you know you've got you've got a conflict going on where the army are fighting against. At any one time, four or five different ethnic armed groups and people make alliances and there'll be a ceasefire. So the WA currently are in a ceasefire situation, which is great for them because while everyone else is fighting, they're sneakily stealing more land and they don't have to fight against the government army because they're in a ceasefire agreement. So the WA is getting bigger and the WA are getting more powerful and are the biggest producers of methamphetamine. I was just thinking, it's not a coincidence given how much money they're making. Yeah. Yeah, wild amounts of money. And they because their territory borders Thailand, it's easy to send, you know, loads of drugs over the Thai border and they've got lots of mostly young men who will carry it over in backpacks. And let's talk about that briefly. Thailand, of course, famously very hard on drugs. Thailand is a country where you can be hung for possession of heroin or Again, one of these great juxtapositions. Yeah, I mean, they'll just shoot. If the Thai DEA, or they actually, the Thai have a, an army working alongside the DEA, they have the Palm Wong, who are an army unit dedicated to stopping drug smuggling. Um, they'll just shoot you dead. Coming up on Australian True Crime, our guest today, Connor Woodman, talks about the various methods used to smuggle methamphetamine into Australia. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. It doesn't stop. It just comes and comes and comes. You have 50 guys at night carrying 50 kilo backpacks full of meth over the jungle. There isn't a trade route directly between Myanmar and Australia. The big boats that are coming into Australia are coming from the big Asian ports. So Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam. So if you have, let's say we've cooked 100 kilos of meth or 500 kilos of meth in Myanmar, and we know the big market for it is in Sydney. We've got a good relationship with a bikey gang down in Sydney. They'll say, right, you get it to us, we'll, we'll sell it. This is the price, great. I mean, cooking the meth is the easy part. And selling it's the easy part. And selling it's the easy part. It's everything in between that's tricky, yeah, because that's where you're going to get caught. I kind of posed as an Australian drug importer um, so that I could meet some Burmese smugglers who came over to Laos, came over the, <laughs> the friendship bridge, as it's called. Uh, they came over the over the bridge to make friends and we got into the s- smuggling routes. And, and what, you, what you have are kind of, again, ethnic groups in Thailand or Laos who will cover a certain patch for you. So you quickly get into a network thing where, okay, Where's your meth? Okay, my meth's in Myanmar. You know, I've got these guys who just produced a ton of meth for me. Can you help me get it as far as Thailand? Yeah, well, we'll take it as far as this place. There's a big casino on the border there called King's Romans, which is kind of lawless. This is a whole other issue we can get into, but there's a few of these places kind of popping up now in Southeast Asia where a billionaire who's made his money in nefarious ways has leased land. So in this case, he's leased about 100 square kilometers from the Lao government and has built a casino there for Chinese gamblers to come over and gamble. And he has complete control over that land. So he has his own police force. He has his own fire fire brigade, his own laws. You know, you have to show your passport to get in and out of there. So effectively, yeah, it's his own kingdom. It's a, it's a, it's a fiefdom that he's been allowed, to, you know, and there's two more further up the, up the Mekong River there, but King's Romans is a really big one. And the smugglers that I spent time with was saying, well, that's a really important staging post. So we'll do handovers. We'll do warehousing. They're like, we can do warehousing. So if, you, if you're if you producing a lot at the moment and you want to control the distribution into Australia from there, you can cook it all now while you've got that good relationship and we can warehouse it for you at King's Romans until you're ready to ship it to Australia. 
Now I'm going to stop you here and ask you, are you scared of saying, hey, everyone, there's this place called King's Romans. It's owned by this incredibly rich guy who it's his own kingdom. He can do whatever he wants. And apparently it's a staging post for the international meth trade. Does it ever occur to you that that incredibly rich guy who's made himself a king might go, shut up about it, Connor, and <laughs> might shut you up? I mean, he, so his name is Zhaowei and he's, um, yeah, I mean, he's already on the the US's most wanted list. You, you can spot him quite easily in King's Romans because he's the only guy who's got Rolls Royce D-tribes around him. Yeah, and King's Romans is a really bad place. You know, there's, op- there's child prostitution, quite open. You know, you can buy endangered animals, meat, drugs on drugs on the streets. You know, it's deliberately a kind of Sodom and Gomorrah place for for the Chinese. So the street signs are in Chinese, the menus are in Chinese. It, predominantly Chinese. There's now an airport that they're building, so that people will be able to fly directly in from China. But I think it needs to be reiterated that it's the in this case the Lao government has sold this land, and it's technically on Lao land. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So again, none of these things happens without governments. Um, sanctioning them, accepting the money, you know, all of these things. Absolutely. And you've got to, que- you've got to question how much corruption is involved and, and who got paid what. And also, again, China doesn't let anything happen unless it approves of it. So it may well be the Chinese government take a view that, well, you know, people want to gamble, people want to get involved in all these terrible activities. We'd rather it happen somewhere else. It's not happening in China, so yeah, fine, we'll let this guy, you know, and this guy is a Chinese citizen that owns it, we'll let him run this place and people can go there and they can do that. But, you know, part of the problem with doing that is that there's no law, there's no international law, there's no oversight, so things like warehousing massive quantities of methamphetamine until they're ready to be shipped to Australia is the consequence. And so, you know, unfortunately, Australians... Australian people are living with one of those consequences of this guy being allowed to act with complete impunity in his little personal kingdom. And if you can find that out, you know, why can't the Australian government and why can't, this is what what I'm asking, how do these drugs get into our island? I found it quite interesting that you'd you'd often see um, like newspaper articles in, in Australia, you know, about busts at the ports in Melbourne, you know, Sydney, Perth. And to give them their due, actually, the Australian Border Force and the Australian Federal Police are pretty effective. They probably stop, because you can you can see how much meth has been done in Australia from the wastewater reports, right? So from you, the sewerage, yeah. From the sewerage. So it's it, the estimates are kind of around 10. Is it 10 tonnes of meth is consumed annually? So it goes up to 11, it drops down to 9, but it's, it's, it's around 10 tonnes. And the, the AFP and the Border Force, they confiscate, I don't know, seven, eight, nine tons at the border. So close to half they're stopping. So they're doing they're doing a pretty good job of stopping what's coming in. I'm not casting aspersions on them and certainly certainly not the AFP or the intelligence. But it is to me, it is the entire process. It is the kind of at, at the governmental level. I mean, here in Australia, as I'm, I'm I know you know, we caught China so enthusiastically. So I think it's issues like this that Australia is very good at turning a blind eye to when it comes to China. This and the building of islands in the in the Pacific Ocean and security issues and stuff like that. Very good at turning a blind eye to those things. Yeah, for sure. Because all all the chemicals for making methamphetamine are coming from China. And sometimes you hear people talk about the oh well, it's a porous border. You know, it's a really long border between Myanmar and China. Nah, because 
there's no drugs going into China. There's no mass migration of people going into China. There's no illicit animals going to China. The Chinese are very good at controlling their borders. There's no no one's ever described the Chinese border as porous before uh, until it comes to this issue, and they say, "Oh, well, it's very porous and very difficult to control." You know. How does it get into Australia? It comes through the ports. Yeah. So right. So you have to get it into Thailand. You have to get it into Malaysia. You have to get it to the big ports. Once you do that, then you've got big trade routes into Australia. So you'll see the busts at the ports in Sydney and Melbourne, and you'll see 500 kilos of meth was hidden inside car speakers or bottles of chili sauce or you know anything that you're importing, anything that you're importing can be turned into a vehicle for methamphetamine. They are so inventive. I've seen bottles of chili sauce where you can squeeze the bottle and the chili sauce comes out the top, but the bottom 80% of the bottle is just a cavity for putting methamphetamine into, you know, and then you multiply that by 10,000 bottles that you're importing, you know, who's going to know? It's, it's incredible. And that and that's why no matter how good the AFP intelligence is, no matter how good the border force are at, at stopping things, they're still catching less than 50% of what's coming in. So where do you think the bulk of that money goes to? Obviously, it's a very expensive endeavour to get it out of there. All of the Every guy who walks out with a backpack is expensive because he's risking his life. Every person who walks through Thailand with it, everyone who, who goes there to make it and signs up for a year. And I mean, yes, it's an expensive endeavour, but it's not $50 billion expensive. So where does the bulk of that money go? Yeah, where does the bulk go? Well, Sam Koru, one of the biggest distribution gangs, they they kind of cornered the market by saying to the, the bikey gangs in Australia, if we lose a shipment, we'll just send you another one. You pay us for a shipment, we'll guarantee it gets in. And if it gets if it gets stopped by the AFP, we'll just send another one. So they've got that much money. I mean, that's like Amazon level delivery <laughs> guarantees, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So they've got enough money to do that, but I, you know, there's still enough profit for for these guys to go and buy fiefdoms in in Lao. I would not be surprised if senior members of the Burmese army, as well as senior members of the other ethnic armed groups have got um, Swiss bank accounts with a lot of zeros in them. I think with a lot of these things, you know, the guys at the top are getting very rich. And I don't think the guy carrying the backpack over the border into Thailand is, is getting paid very much. No. So you're up against it. I don't know. I don't know if you can ever stop that. Yes, you can slow it down. And I would argue it's important to slow it down because I think slowing it down has an effect on the price on the street. And I think the price on the street has an effect on consumption. I think if a point of meth was $10, people with problematic use would do more of it. I think rec recreational users might say, you know, if I'm a middle-class user, it takes, takes meth every six months when I go to a club. I don't really care if it's $50 a point or $10 a point. It's not going to make much difference to me. I've got disposable income, but I think if you're a problematic user, you know, use it every day, yeah, you probably would use more and that would be bad. So I think supply reduction, I don't think it's going to solve a problem. I don't think it's going to stop anything, but I think it, it slows things down, let's say. So it's probably still an important strategy or part of the strategy. Well, your book is divided up into three parts, we should say, supply, demand, and solutions, which I thought was very brave the solutions part <laughs> of the book. I mean, I will say that, and, and we say often, and it's, I'm, you know, it, it's a very common held belief that our biggest mistake, and probably in the Western world, I think our biggest mistake is treating drugs as a crime rather than a health 
issue. Do you agree with that? So I would say I think supply reduction can play an important part. I think that part should be played at the level of the AFP and the border force. I think if you can stop a ton of meth coming into the streets, do it. Good. Yep. I would argue once it's on the street, forget about supply reduction. It's done. It's here. You know, and I think I think a lot of money is spent on state police budgets. And I think the state police are not very effective. If you compare their busts dollar for dollar with the AFP, it's a bad use of money. And also I think some of the tactics and the approaches of state police to supply reduction is is not great for society. Like drug dogs. Drug dogs at festivals? Are you serious? Is this Nazi Germany? This is like ridiculous. I mean, it's dehumanizing, you know, strip searches of, of like kids going to see, see music. To what end? You know, I, when I started this book, I said at the beginning, you know, I'm happy to cop some flax. I'm an outsider and people can say, well, go and stick to your own thing. But I felt like as an outsider, I could come in with some fresh eyes. And I thought, well, the important question is, well, what does Australia want? Because what's been going on is not working, but no one's happy. You've got a really polarized argument. People are just screaming at each other and no one's really taking a step back and saying, well, what do we want from this? And I think the supply reduction guys, if you want to reduce supply, there it is. It's AFP. It says, if it's what's going on on the street, if it's, it's, if it's an effect on demand, drug dogs at festivals are not going to reduce the demand for methamphetamine. That's such an outdated way of thinking about this. If anything, there are, Plenty of stories out there of kids turning up at a music festival with a whole bunch of drugs in their pocket, seeing a drug dog, panicking and taking them all. You know, you're more likely to do harm with drug dogs than you are to reduce harm. And I think one of the things that I heard and what a lot of the polls that are being done in Australia right now are saying is, well, can we reduce harm? You know, can we reduce the harm to our society? Because that affects all of us. I was shocked just being in Australia at how often, you know, like, like I said, I get up early, I'm up at 6.30 in the morning and I, I you know, get on my day. And I was driving around Australia, so I was trying to go to as many different places. But like, I was amazed, you know, just being up in the morning and filling the car up with petrol and, and someone would come over and start talking to me, you know, some friendly fella chatting to me at 6.30. Oh, what, what kind of petrol are we put in there, mate? <laughs> like, I'm like, have you been to bed, mate? And, oh, no, mate, I haven't been to bed for three days. I'm like, Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. You know, I was just meeting people on meth all the time, just everywhere, not just like in Brisbane and Sydney and the big cities. I was you know, just on the streets all over the place. So uh, one of the things I thought was, well, surely one of the things Australia must want is like a way of, of managing this because it's unusual. And I imagine for some people it's irritating. I imagine for other people it's upsetting, like to see so many people in a state of, of psychotic addiction, just wandering around on the streets, is that's that, that's not what anybody wants. I think it's affecting a lot of families. I think a lot of families just don't know what to do. You know, have tried to get help. It's a very difficult drug to kick and to stay sober from. And as I say, it, it you can lose your family, lose your kids. It's hard. It's very closely associated with violent crime. So it's hard to get your kids back because you can have some stuff on your record pretty easily. And there's a lot of families affected that way. Yeah. So once you have, let's say, when it, you know, you have a kid who is engaging in problematic Matthews, you know, it's bordering on a kind of addiction situation. 
the hardline police criminalization policy is too late for that person. Yeah. And in fact, it, it adds to, can add to a criminal record, which makes it harder to access help. Yeah. Which makes the whole situation feel more bleak to the individual involved, which makes their chances of recovery so much less. And, you know, what I, I, I kept saying to people is, well, you've been trying this. This is what you've been doing for the last 20 years and, and no one's happy. So it's, it's not working. There's no consensus. There's no progress. You know, addiction rates are going up. Use is staying pretty steady at around 10 tons a year. If you want to change things, then you have to do something different. So like, you've got to look at it. You've got to look at things differently, but there's a finite pot of money. So where do you take the money from? I would argue state police budgets. That's not going to be very popular in, America, in Australia because I know you're very wedded to your state police. I, but I think if you want some, if you want to find some money, I think there's money to be found there. And I'm not saying defund the police, but I'm saying there's a lot of money getting spent on state police supply reduction strategies that are just not working. And I think there are other strategies which I think could be more effective in delivering what you want. Yeah, well, I mean, I can tell you, we talk about it a lot. Like uh, here in Victoria, we've got the Latrobe Valley, which for a lot of reasons is a really depressed part of the world. It used to have uh, electricity industry and they shut the electricity places down and they built towns there for the people who were going to work there, right? And then they just shut the, the the factories down. So all these people were unemployed overnight. So since then, we've had a couple of generations of unemployed people. So it's had a huge meth, meth problem, but there's no detoxes. There's no rehabs there. So it's like really simple, clear cut opportunities like that. Yeah. Rehab. Okay. So rehab needs a few things in Australia. It needs, it needs more funding and it needs to be better organized. I mean, one of the, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked when I went to Australia to see what a wild west situation the rehab industry is. I mean, certainly some of the rehabs that I visited and that I met and the people that were involved in the rehabilitation system in Australia were themselves ex-users. Yes, very common. Yeah. People and people people with lived experience play a, can play a very important part, but there didn't seem to be much vetting. Right. of those people. I met, I mean, I met some people that I found truly terrifying in their worldviews. Um, but by virtue of the fact that they had once been a user, they were kind of being given responsibility for other people, vulnerable people in that situation to help start their recovery. And I thought, well, this is not sustainable. So I think some sort of maybe federally run, but certainly state run, organized, licensed, overseen rehabilitation program needs to be put in place. And maybe some of these you know, religious groups or uh, charity groups, independent groups at the moment could be brought underneath that umbrella. But I think there needs to be some sort of overall oversight over how rehabilitation is run. That's a really interesting observation. And I've never heard that before. And I think this is what you were saying before about fresh eyes, because I think we have such a, an innate disinterest in anyone telling us what to do. Point number one. Point number two is because of our massive drinking culture, we have an innate disinterest in anyone telling us how to take our drinking, deal with our drinking, and I think that has transgressed over to our drug taking. So as I'm listening to you say that, I'm thinking, oh, of course, it doesn't surprise me that our rehab sector would strike you as a little bit loosey-goosey. That doesn't surprise me one bit. And of course, it's not regulated. And of course, it should be. There's rehab centres doing exorcisms on people with 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 drug addiction. It's it's bonkers. Okay, you can't have that's not that's not going to work. In, you know, if I'm a vulnerable young person, 
who's got my, who's made some bad decisions and got myself into a, into a state of addiction. And then I have the wherewithal, and it might only be a crumb of wherewithal to know that I've got a problem and want to address it. That chance, when if I if I volunteer to put myself into rehab, that chance is precious and it cannot be squandered. We, you know, Australia needs to take those vulnerable people and make sure that they have the best chance of recovery, and that is so important. That needs to be thought about centrally, and that there needs to be best practice considered. There needs to be proper code of conduct and regulations and rules, and people need to be you know, appointed who are professionally competent at doing that job. I don't think it can be left to the the charitable or the religious sector. I'm not saying that people with lived experience should not be part of that debate. They absolutely should. And I know sometimes for people going into rehab, they like to have someone with lived experience because they can empathize. But it, it there just needs to be, I think, a debate in Australia about, well, what is best practice? What can we all learn from what each other are doing well? And what is not working? Let's stop the exorcisms. Let's make sure that people who are inappropriate are weeded out, and let's make sure that people are properly supervised. And and you know, rehabilitation doesn't work first time for most people. You know, often people need two or three goes at it. So yeah, I would say that is absolutely one thing. And then you know, it's I think it's becoming maybe something that people can talk about more in Australia, but it's kind of harm minimization strategies. I think uh, we touched on the dreaded D word, decriminalization, which a lot of Australians don't want. I mean, even that report, the New South Wales government commissioned themselves. One of the recommendations was you know, decriminalization and they just flatly rejected it. Like, well, if you don't like the answer, don't ask the question. But yeah, I think I think what's happening with decriminalization in Australia maybe is that it's kind of sneaking in through the back door. So, you know, you're getting the kind of three strikes and you're out policies being kind of brought in. So the first couple of times you're not gonna go you're not gonna go to jail. We're gonna give you another chance. You know, that I can see that being extended, but I don't really see any merit in taking a kid who's been caught with some methamphetamine and criminalizing him or her. I mean, I talk in the book a bit about post-retirement enlightenment syndrome, which is something that a lot of police officers that I spoke to suffer from, some of them openly. You know, every serving police officer that I spoke to said things to me that I thought were crackers like, oh, well, marijuana is a gateway drug. <laughs> to meth? What? No, it's not. You know, well, we need to come down harder on marijuana users. That's the, you know, the question was, how can we reduce the amount of meth being consumed? You know, we need to come down harder on marijuana smokers. I mean, that's for the birds. What are you talking about? You know, you can't possibly believe that. And they don't because then, you know, five minutes after they've retired, these guys are all signing up to these really progressive harm minimization rehabilitation schemes and saying, well, the only thing we can do is, is kind of decriminalize these people and try and bring them back into society. And why didn't you say that while you were a serving officer? And they as because they, they can't. They don't feel that they don't they just don't feel that they can. They can't come out and actually say what they mean. But look, ninety nine percent of the people that I met who are on who are on meth, I met I met a lot of people that were on meth. They were friendly, they were engaging, they just wanted to chat. They often they'd forget what they were chatting about halfway through, but you know, we've all been there. And I think I think definitely the media could play a big role in helping Australia achieve what it wants. 
which is learning to live with this. And you're going to have to learn to live with it because it's not going away. And I think the media could keep it real. I think the the focus on the violent outbursts, which are often associated with people who have underlying mental health conditions, let's face it, you've got to cut the bullshit. You've got to be more honest. You know, put a camera on the guy that I met at the forecourt at 6.30 in the morning Yeah, for, tw- for 20 seconds of him talking. And th- that will put off more teenagers taking meth than watching this sort of overly dramatized ER destruction scene, which they see straight through. You know, play on the fact that, you know, it just doesn't look cool being that, being that, that looks man. ugly and grinding his teeth yeah. and sweaty. I mean, it, like mm. I said, it put me off. I thought when I started this book, I thought I'd go gonzo and have a go. And then when I actually, you know, let's try some meth and write it, maybe write the chapter while I'm high on meth. Wouldn't that be cool? No. Once I saw the actual effect and how it went, I was like, not, no, not for me at all. It just doesn't look, it doesn't look fun. And I understand how it helps some people escape. And also, you know, we should talk about the ADHD phenomenon in, in Australia. You know, there seems to be a lot of people going and getting private ADHD prescri- prescriptions to deal with, you know, what was usually diagnosed as a childhood condition is now being sort of reassessed in adulthood. Yes. And I met a lot of people who were self-prescribing methamphetamine because they either they had been on ADHD drugs and they couldn't afford them anymore, or they'd never been able to afford an ADHD prescription, but meth works quite in a quite a similar way to things, you know, that you, the ADHD drugs that you get prescribed. That's what I was going to ask you. Do you think it really does? Or do you think that was because of the idea that, oh, when you're a kid and you've got ADHD, they give you speed? Yeah, well, they, well, they still give you speed. That's, in fact, that's what they're giving you is speed. Yeah. So, you know, if you have the kind of mind that can't quite settle and can't, can't focus. You, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of this this chat that you know you've met people who say, "Oh, meth just helps me get through the day." You know, if you have those symptoms um, and you can't get access to Adderall or you know whatever it is they're giving you, meth might be the next best thing, and that does help you to get out of bed and do the washing up and go to the, go to the grocery store and do all the, do all those things that you're not able to do otherwise. No, but we know anecdotally that there are a lot of people walking the earth who are self-medicating mental health issues, you know, from everything from anxiety, depression, ADHD, you know, whatever it is, um, who have not for whatever reason been able to get the prescription, the health care that they need, but they find through alcohol, whatever, it helps a bit. We know it's not the best help that they can get, but I guess meth joins the list of things that people use thinking it's helping for a period of time. Yeah, I think so. And I, th- I think learning as a society to have more empathy for those people is what's going to help us. Because like, even if you stopped the war in Myanmar, you know, Afghanistan is moving into methamphetamine production. The Mexican cartel are already well into it with producing for the US and are always looking for ways to get into the Australian market. It's going to come in from somewhere, you know, it, 10 tons of methamphetamine is a big market. It's a significant market and people will find a way in. When you consider, as I said, you know, a lot of these people are self-medicating the effects of some sort of abuse, you know, whether that be physical, mental, sexual abuse that they experienced in their childhood, which again, disproportionately affects people from lower socioeconomic groups. You know, you can understand why, you know, methamphetamine creates a dissociative state, which is, it's, you know, it's soothing to people that want to forget those painful memories. 
this goes right to the heart of who we are as a society. You know, meth is not causing these problems. Meth is a symptom of these problems. And I think we should all bear that in mind when we try and find empathy for people that are taking meth. And I think, as I said, I think the media could do a better job of presenting this in a more honest way. The majority of meth users are, are not incredible hulks that they are going to tear your house down. You know, the majority of meth users are recreational users, but even the majority of problematic meth users are people who have who have problems that we should empathize with rather than judge. Thank you to our guest today, Connor Woodman. His book, Meth Road, is available now, and there's a link in the show notes to help you get your copy. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13 yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. 